Hello and welcome to Dr. Hallowell's wonderful world of different ADHD and beyond. Today I'm welcoming one of my best friends in the whole wide world, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you his professional qualifications, which are impressive indeed. Michael Thompson is a PhD in psychology, a graduate of Harvard College, and had a, an illustrious career as a private practice psychologist until he discovered his true calling, both as an author and as a consultant to independent schools. And I think it's uh, beyond doubt to say he is now the most celebrated, well-known and accomplished independent school consultant on the planet Earth today, as well as he consults to public schools and any school that wants to invite him in. But the man is is truly a mensch. He is a, a wise and funny, down-to-earth, but extremely knowledgeable person. When it comes to children, he's best known for his book, Raising Cain, which is about boys, and a follow-up book called It's a Boy, which tells you more about boys than boys themselves know. It's a, a rich treasure chest. If you have a boy, you ought to get it. He's a very entertaining writer, and but a smart one, and extremely knowledgeable. You know, his Harvard training is not by accident. But don't be put off by Harvard. He's anything but a snob. He is a, very much a man of the people and understands all kinds of different children, better than anyone I know. He, he really is, he's reached an age where, you know, he is, he, he can be legitimately called wise. He's chuckling as I say that, but it is true. His wife would also chuckle, but it is true. He is a wise man who knows a lot about boys, children, and life. So with that introduction, which is not nearly as long as I could and would like to make it, I welcome to this podcast a, an illustrious man who I love and admire deeply, Michael Thompson. And pardon me, I had to turn off my cell phone. That's my ADD showing me. Anyway, Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Then should we tell your listeners who nudged and nudged and harassed me into starting writing? Should we mention that? Sure, sure. Because that was you. You were the <laughs> one who got me writing. Well, and you kept at it for years. Well, I, Until I, I did, and it was the right thing. I am so, so thank glad you. I did, because... Most people who say they want to write, I say, don't do it. It's a, it's a life of frustration and disappointment. But in your case, I indeed said, do it, do it, do it, do it. And it worked out rather well. And it worked out extremely well. You've written some wonderful books. And I would add, had a good time doing it. So everybody benefited all, all around. And I think I was also the person who brought you into the world of independent school consultation, you know, when you when you came out to Pheasanton and gave a talk, and the next thing you know, you're doing that. But we're not going to talk about independent school consultation, right. or we're, we're not. We're, we're going to talk not. about parents who are worried that their kids were traumatized by the pandemic. Yeah, so we, we've been through this thing called a pandemic. I like to say we've been pandemic but we're still being pandemic and we haven't really had time to get perspective and take stock, but you have, because you've been thinking a lot about it. So tell us, please, what has happened to us all, but more specifically, what has happened to our children since this terrible plague began? Well, let me say I have a perspective. I'm lucky enough to have a perspective, which is global, because 
my calendar was washed away by the pandemic. My work used to be traveling and speaking at schools. I couldn't do that. But schools began to come say, would you talk to our, we have these very worried parents or we have these very worried teachers. And I started getting calls from international schools in Hong Kong and schools in Islamabad, Pakistan and schools in Lithuania. And all of a sudden I was talking to worried parents all around the world. And I may have done 300 Zooms with parents. And they are worried about four things. First of all, has the pandemic traumatized their children? Are their children going to suffer from serious learning loss? Are their children going to have arrested development in their social lives because of having been isolated from friends? Or as one mother said, spending too much time with siblings. <laughs> I, I think that wears down the mother, but it's not that bad for the kids. And finally, there, there are so many parents who allowed their children more screen time are now worried that they're going to have screen addicts. So if I can just, can I hit those four? Please mental, do. Please mental do. health, learning loss, social arrested development, let's call it, and screen addictions. Yeah. So if you were to read the popular press, you might think that this generation of children was traumatized by the pandemic. You and I know as mental health professionals that trauma has a particular meaning and a particular set of symptoms. But pop psychology now has it as anything that's strong feeling. If you're very upset, if you lost somebody in your family, if you were truly disappointed, you're traumatized. Everything that's strong and intense is now trauma. And you and I, Ned, know that's rubbish. And I've been telling parents that I want them to stop thinking about their children as traumatized. What I am seeing in schools, and I've been in many, talked to many, many educators in probably hundreds of schools in the last two years, is that children are mostly resilient and they're mostly coping. Yes, there is a minority of children that are fragile. They're individual kids who became more anxious or more depressed and their isolation led to depression. And yes, there are requests for more services. There are more teenage girls with suicidal ideation showing up at emergency rooms. But that's all that you read. If you read the Boston Globe, read the New York Times, that's, you hear more, there are more girls presenting with suicidal ideation. This generation has been traumatized. Well, actually, the number of girls who actually showed up at emergency rooms was very small. And in absolute terms, a 50% increase is still not many kids. Let me give you an example. I was talking to a large international school in a major US city. I think I won't identify it. A school of about a thousand kids. And the counselor said to me, very worried and, and full of goodwill and empathy. She said, we're just having so many more kids in trouble. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, kids hospitalized. And I said, well, in an average year, how many kids have to be hospitalized at your school? A thousand kids in the school. She said, well, two. (laughs) And I said, okay. And in the pandemic, how many? And she's been, she said, the first year of the pandemic, we had four. (laughs) So of course that's a, that's a doubling. That's 100% increase. mental hospitalization. Not a psychiatric not, hospitalization. Yeah, yeah, okay. So there have been more kids expressing distress, but actually, in the state of California, this is a sad statistic, but in the state of California, they expect about 1,400 teenage suicides a year. Yeah. 
And in the first year of the pandemic, it was 1,200. Wow. It, in fact, there was more distress expressed, but fewer kids took their lives. Now, that's a kind of a puzzle, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So where did I get that? I've been following the research from uh, uh, the British medical journal Lancet has put yeah. together a commission to collect all of the mental health research from around the world on what the impact of the pandemic is. Ah. And they concluded that our psychological immune system was stronger than we thought mm. about that. Yeah, that's so I've been trying to say to parents, if your child has been angry, if your child has been sad, if your child has had trouble for a period in the pandemic, they're not alone. But that doesn't mean that they are traumatized or that therapy is the only thing for them. What they actually need is to get back to school. Right. <laughs> right. And to get because I uh, you know I'm connected to summer camps. Yes. And a lot of parents called me and said, what do we do? How do we prepare our children to go to summer camp? They haven't been with children. And this goes to my point three. Our children having social arrested development because they were remote learners for a long stretch. What Dr. Thompson, how do we get our kids back to camp? And I say, well, you ask them if there's anything they're worried about, and you listen carefully to their answer, and then you put them in the car and you drive them to camp and you open the door and wish them a good summer. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, as you know, Sue and I and Jack run a, a week-long summer camp and uh, already enrollments are higher than ever for the coming June. I mean, it, it's hasn't far from deterring people, it spurred them on. I mean, I think I think people are hungry for connection, they're hungry for normalcy, and, and it's good to hear you say take heart. It, not only is it not as bad as you think, it's not all that bad, period. I did a Zoom recently with 50 camp directors, and they are not seeing traumatized children come to yeah. camp. They are seeing a few anxious children and some children who are apprehensive. But the vast majority of children, even if they're moments of social awkwardness, within a few hours or a day, are back in the mix are in the swim. Look, our neurobiology, as you well know, because you've written about it, is for connection. Yeah. And it has been hard on kids yeah. to be sequestered. It's, it's also hard if, you're, if your favorite team loses. I mean, you know. I mean, you know <laughs> but that's not trauma. That's not trauma. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> are, there, are there Cincinnati Bengal fans who are traumatized <laughs> right, permanently? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I object to the kind of pop psychology use of trauma. It's devalued the word. What, it what really do you call has. It? It's stretched. It's trivialized. What's, yeah. what, what, I'm searching for a verb. Yeah, uh, trivialize is good, you know, or it's it's rendered it almost meaningless. You know, if yeah. if it, I think the one of the papers did a piece if if so much is trauma is anything trauma. You know, yeah. I mean, so I'm very glad, but because you you really have seen kids around the world and dealt with parents around the world, and so you know your report is is meaningful indeed. That and that's very heartening. Let's very heartening. let's talk about let's talk about the public school kids in Chicago, where the Chicago Teachers Union. The teachers didn't come back into the classroom for a year, and most of the kids didn't have laptops or Chromebooks or Wi-Fi, and those kids missed their school, their friends, their teachers, any year of learning. Those poor kids, the least able to be resilient and maybe had more deaths in their family from COVID, those kids have been hit much harder than middle class and upper middle class kids, as in so many things, your ability to cope and adapt is influenced by how much structure and support you have. Right. Kids who've been able to stay in touch with their teachers, even in a little box on the screen, right, 
have gotten what they needed. Now, have they had any learning loss? Well, I, I talked to a head of an independent elementary school in California, and she said, look, all of our kids learn multiplication, all of our elementary kids. They know the concept. They understand it. They can do it. They're not that good at it because they haven't had enough practice. Right, right. In my school, which, as you know, is a boys, an all-boys school where your two sons went, the teachers say the kids came back from their remote and hybrid situations out of shape. Right. Out of training. Right. Not used to the workloads. Right. But is that a trauma? It's not. No. Is there been some loss? Yes. Is it recoverable? With warmth, structure, and high expectations, they will get back on it. Yeah. So what parents are doing is thinking, oh, our child is traumatized and we can't expect anything of her or him. Right. That's not true. Right. Right. So don't reduce your expectations. Don't uh, dumb it down and and encourage them and see to it that they get right back up and go for it. Exactly. Yeah. Back on the horse. Yeah. Yeah. So what about number four, the, the screen time? Well, I mean, look, the average American uses her or his smartphone an average of over 200 times a day. Wow. So a boy at my school uh, told the health teacher, when she asked, she was uh, uh, talking to ninth grade boys, and he asked them, because your phone will count this stuff for you, how many times do you, a day do you check Snapchat? And he said, this ninth grade boy said, well, 253 times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was, I was saying to another boy in the school, a slightly older boy, what do you think of that? He said, that sounds about right. <laughs> so, uh, Look, these kids are very wedded to these devices and parents had to let their kids be on screens more because the parents who were lucky enough to work from home had to be on screens themselves. Yeah. They need their kids on screens. Yeah. Big kids, little kids, they needed kids to be doing homework on screens, connecting yeah. with their schools. So there was more screen use, but I got this so much panicky and self-reproaching questions from parents yeah. that I called Michael Rich at the Harvard Medical School. Do you know him, Ned? The mediatrician? Oh, no, I don't. He's a pediatrician who's writing a book about the impact of media on kids. Uh-huh. You, you might want to interview Michael Rich. Yes, I'd love to. He, Michael Rich. He's a good guy, the mediatrician. Yeah. yeah. And I called him and I said, well, Mike, are you worried? And he said, well, it's two Michaels talking to each other. He said, Michael, right. look, you know, as I know, there have always been a minority of kids whose brain wiring predisposes them to be pulled in by screens. Right. That screens just have, you've written about this kind of kid, right? Sure. And he said, but you know, when the pandemic is over and people are able to be with their friends and able to play on their teams and maybe be in theater or extracurriculars or dance or whatever it is, the screens will take their rightful balanced place in a child's life, as long as parents are willing to put the rules back in place. Right, right. So I was down North Carolina and two mothers said to me, Dr. Thompson, what do we do with our 14-year-old daughters? They're just, they've suffered so much during the pandemic and they're so sad and they stay up all night on their phones and we don't know (laughs) what to do because when we tell them they can't use their phones, they tell us that they 
have to. It's the only thing that holds meaning <laughs> for them. And I say, oh, my God, are you being manipulated by 14-year-old girls? 14-year-old right, right. girls right. can pull out their sadness and club you with it right. at, right. at any moment. I said, tell them that they, they can't take their phones. You know, TIO, turn it off. I mean, you yes. know, it, it, it's, it's just that simple. And for a lot of parents, just that difficult, because like you say, they they get manipulated and it's a sob story. But, you know, this is one of those problems where it's often as much of a struggle for the parents as it is for the kids. Okay. You know, we're all struggling to learn how to moderate our use of screens. You know, we're all hooked. I'm hooked. Oh, yeah, me too. It's, so I was at a boarding school in a city in China. Yeah. Again, it was ninth grade girls. And when they take attendance at, at bedtime, you have to be back in your dorm at a certain time. And they had attendance three ways. The girl had to be in the dorm and check in with the dorm parent. Yes. And they had a big tower of plugs, you know, electric plugs. Yes, yes. And you had to plug your phone into the tower and you had to plug your laptop. Wow. At bedtime. And so they had, the girl is here, but she's not with her phone and she's not with her laptop. Wow. That was the rule to boarding school. Wow. Well, you know what? At 1030 at night for ninth grade kids, that makes sense, doesn't it? Totally. Totally. You don't need your, you don't need your cell phone at 2 a.m. I mean, you really don't. <laughs> and, uh, even if you're a sad 14-year-old girl. Even if you're very sad, you know, <laughs> you'd be much better off sleeping. Or uh, So do we sound like unsympathetic psychiatrists and psychologists? No, I think we're, we're bearers of good news. You know, hey, listen, people, this has not been fun, but it has not been traumatic. But you do need to make sure your kids don't uh, overdo it with electronics and screens. You know, not not because it's going to rot their brains, but they won't get enough sleep. And most of all, they won't be doing the other things they could be doing when they're on a screen. So when I talk about all kids not being traumatized, people say, but what about the U.S. Surgeon General that published a report saying there was a crisis in mental health? And the truth is, if you have a an increase, I mean, if if 10 or 11 percent of kids need psychiatric and psychological services at any time. If you have an increase to 15% of kids needing them, that overwhelms the system, right? Right. And that's what's happened. The system is overwhelmed. In your mind, then, what percentage of kids do you think of as needing services at any one time? Of all the kids in, in the country? Yeah. Do you think of 15% is needing services of, of, of mental health services. At yeah, any 10, 10 to 15%. Yeah. Okay. So if you have, if 10% increases to 15 or 15 increases to yeah. 20 and different researchers start with a different baseline figure. Yeah. But a 50% increase overwhelms the system. Right. Exactly. It's just the system is not geared up to handle it. It doesn't mean that the, they're, they're swarming the streets with mental illness. But newspapers and magazines and online oh, yes. don't make money by saying that 80% of kids are resilient. Oh, believe me, Michael, I know this only too well in, in my field. You know, all the press will ever write about is the dangers of stimulant medication. And the fact of the matter is a balanced view is that stimulant medication is very safe and it's quite a wonder drug as long as you use it properly. You'll never get a, a popular press article saying stimulant medication saves lives. They, all they say is that it kills people and is highly dangerous. I mean, they, 
the press just loves to exaggerate because fear sells and they and they want and parents, you know, are sitting ducks for the purveyors of fear. So I was talking to uh, heads from association in Eastern Europe, and he said, I this head said, I, I'm going to have to hire two new counselors to deal with all the traumatized children. Yeah. And I said to him, no, you don't. Don't buy into the trauma narrative. And he wrote me a note saying that was a little abrupt. <laughs> Dr. <Thompson. laughs> well, and maybe I, you brought about a sudden attack of common sense. You know, I mean, I think, I think I, he was full of care. He wanted to yes. do the right thing for his kids. Yes. But I said, don't hire two extra counselors. Get your teachers back in the classroom and your kids back in the classroom. And maybe, blessedly, we hope the masks off when they can safely yeah. come off. Yeah. And Good teaching is good therapy. Yeah. And then you and I know this from our boyhoods, just one reason why we're devoted to schools, because yeah. we came from crazy families. Yeah. And school was warm, reliable, supportive. And that is still what the research says. And I, I don't think this notion that counselors carry some magic uh, ability, what they really need to be doing is talking to each other. And and talking to the teachers, you know, like you say, the, the the school environment is a therapeutic environment. You don't need counselors. I mean, now and then you do, but uh, by and large, I think counselors are much better. I'd much rather have the the class talking to one another in the hallways than everyone running off for their counseling appointment. I'm with you. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, well, we're. I think we've offered a very, first of all, informed from your point of view, and reassuring message that, you know, yeah, it's been hard, but it hasn't been traumatic. You know, it's all going to work out. And those that distinct few that has a genuine challenge when it comes to their mental health, well, we've always had such people and we have ways of helping them too. I do want to add the one thing. Yeah. For my point three about kids' social isolation. Yeah. I am hearing reports from a school says the ninth grade boys are so handsy they're all over each other they're just like seventh grade boys and then i hear from another school the fifth graders are acting like third grade uh-huh. and i'm thinking uh-huh and then they i get another school that said the second grade boys are all over each other they're throttling each other they're kind of like out of control kindergartners uh-huh. and i'm thinking well yeah they were all physically distanced they couldn't touch each other and they have missed something and they're now a little bit socially immature in a group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, support and high expectations. Right, and and re- return to structure and normalcy, and, and it's no big deal. Yes, there's been a slight regression. Fine, we can deal with that. We can deal with that. Well, this has been so much fun. I, I can't thank you enough. I know how busy you are, and I, it's really delighted. I've heard about your podcast. I was wondering when the hell you were going to invite me. Uh, <laughs> well... <laughs> It's so much fun to have you. And for those of you listening, please write in with your comments about Michael or about this show, about what you'd like to see us do in the in future shows and send it to the word different at hallowellcenter.org. That's different at hallowellcenter.org. And we really need to hear from you, love to hear from you, act on your suggestions, uh, guests like Michael Thompson and respond to what's on your mind. But the only way we really find out what's on your mind is if we hear from you directly. So please send us a, a note, email it to different at hallowellcenter.org. 
Again, thank you, my dear friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Michael Thompson. You can reach him in any number of ways by his books. Google him. He is very available and very responsive and uh, a very sane and wise man. Lucky to have him in our world. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for all the kind words. And for now, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell for a wonderful world of different goodbye for today. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.